Zim at Altarebi. One of the very famous Maimarim of the Altarebi. Very fundamental ideas that are discussed. And also the Rebbe has many Maimarim titled Maim Rabin, which are named and based off of this original Maimar of Maim Rabin. And the theme, what's the called here? Spiritual elevation from refining materialism. So the theme that's really discussed, it, it's based upon a question that's not explicitly asked in the Maimar, but that the entire Maimar is based off of, which is how are we supposed to be godly people, live godly lives in every area of our life, every aspect of our life, and focus in our relationship with Hashem in every area, and at the same time, just surviving, not even, let's say, thriving, just surviving in the physical world is a challenge, right? And we would think, and we've, you know, we've learned enough Hasidus so far to know that the whole purpose of creation is to bring God down into this world, right? And to cultivate that relationship with him and make him a home down here. You would think if that's the whole purpose, why would God make this world so distracting? To the point that just to survive in this world, we would automatically think that that would equal forgetting about God. The challenge that's specifically discussed in the Maimur is the challenge of making money. And we know that that is something that nobody is exempt from or can run away from. I was thinking about it, like, okay, maybe, maybe this Maimur doesn't apply to someone who's just really, really wealthy, right? Or who, who just like, got a crazy inheritance. And I was thinking, who's more distracted by money? Probably the more money you have, the more distracted by money you are, right? It's not, nobody is just exempt, I guess you could say, born with a silver spoon enough. No one's exempt from the worries of, of money. If you have money, your worried someone's going to take it from you, right? If your parents have money, you're worried that they're going to give it to you over somebody else, right? If you don't have money, you're worried that you need money. It's, it's, um, it's a reality that we live with. And um, it's a challenge. And not only is it a challenge, it's very distracting and it's consuming and it takes up a lot of our time. I will say, it doesn't say explicitly in the manual, but that we can um, substitute the concept of the challenge of money for all physical challenges in the manual. It doesn't say it explicitly, but when we speak about challenges, we speak about the challenge of surviving in the physical world, right? It doesn't come easy. And the question of the manual is, if the whole purpose of creation is to bring God down here and to serve God and to learn Torah and to do mitzvahs, why did God make it so hard? Why did God make the phys our physical <coughs> lives so distracting and so challenging and so all-consuming to the point that it seems like a complete contradiction on the one hand to be putting out all the fires of our life and at the same time to be cultivating this relationship with God and to be bringing God down into this world and into our lives. And that's really, that's really the question of this mimer that we're going to be addressing. And the Alter Rebbe compares this, these challenges, the physical challenges, the challenges to make a living, with the flood waters that we learn about in Parshas Noah. You guys are all familiar with the story of Noah, right? That's one that like, um, I, I think everyone um, is familiar with. Um, that the world became corrupt, right? Very soon after it was created. And God decided that he doesn't want the world to continue this way. And he brought a flood, 
and he destroyed the entire world, except for Noah and his immediate family and some animals, right, which went into an ark. Everything else was completely, completely destroyed. And so the, the explicit question in the Mimer is why did God destroy the world with the flood? We know that God could destroy the world in an instant. If you guys have learned some Tanya and Sharia Chavimuna speaks about this specifically, God is bringing the world into being every single moment. If God wanted to destroy the world, what does he, what does he have to do? Just stop to bring the world. Just stop bringing it into being, right? He doesn't have to actively come and fire an owl and what, you just stop and the world will cease to be. So why did God go to all these lengths to bring a flood upon the world, right? And if it was the people who were corrupt, to so just get rid of the evil people. If, if, if that's the point, just get rid of the evil people. If you want to destroy the whole world, just stop bringing them to being. Like, what's, what's this whole idea of a flood? So the altar is going to connect the idea of a flood, of the flood waters, to the challenges of our day-to-day -day life. And we're going to actually be speaking about what we can call the upside of the flood, the advantage to the flood of Noah, and the advantage to the physical challenges that we face on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's really what we're going to be discussing. Um, and I've been thinking about this because I was, I was learning with Tanya this morning. It's very interesting. We're up to Igerat um, HaKodesh, one of the letters that the Alter Rebbe wrote out. <coughs> Usually they were public letters. Sometimes they were individual. Uh, number 25. And he's addressing a question of the Misnagdim. Misnagdim comes from the word Miknaged, which means opponents, those who put us in a... He's addressing a big question that they had, which it, on the Torah of the Alter Rebbe, of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov has a Torah, has a, a vart, I guess we can say, where he takes a pasuk, which says that um, somebody who gets angry, it's as if he served, he's an idol worshiper. And he explains that the reason why that is, is because if you're getting angry at somebody for doing something, you're not recognizing that the truth is that Hashem is the one who's doing that to you. And you're thinking that this person is the one doing it to you, getting angry at the person, which shows they don't believe in Hashem. Intense stuff, right? Intense stuff. Misnagdim were very against this because they, they were very against specifically this Torah. They got angry about that. They got angry. So, so that's the thing, you know, this whole, um, there, there's definitely like politics between, there was always politics between Hasidim and those who opposed Hasidim. Then there were also real ideological arguments, um, you know, and this was one of them. The whole idea of Hashtaka Pratit, which we're all, I'm sure, familiar with this idea, this is a Hasidic idea. Before the, the, before the Baal Shem Tov, the, what was universally understood in Judaism was what's called Hashkacha Klalit, general Hashkacha. Can you say Hashkacha in English? Um, supervising. Supervision. Supervision. Um, general supervision. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> the idea that God exists in every single thing to the point that if you get angry at somebody, you're actually negating God's existence and involvement in the world because who made that person be angry at you? Who made that person make you angry? Who gave them life to, to make you angry? Who used them as a shaliyah to not to make you angry, sorry, to challenge you? Hashem, right? The Messiah were against this. That's why they were against this, this, this Torah of the Baal Shem Tov. They said, whoa, 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 wait. Hashem doesn't manifest himself in evil acts and evil people. If somebody is an evil person and is doing something evil to you, you should be angry at the person, not at God. God isn't involved here. God is mashkiach, 
from afar, the tiny details and the bad things that happen, that's not God. I mean, that's, you know, that's God letting the world happen. God created the world and then the world happens. And the Bashamta says, no, 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 you're not allowed to be angry at that person. That person needs to get punished because he didn't have to be the shaliyah. He didn't have to be the messenger for your suffering. And he, you know, somebody else could have done it, but he chose to. But at the end of the day, that's not up to you. That's between him and God. You should not be getting angry at this person because God's the one who got him to do that. So the Al-Turabi is explaining to the Misnagdim in this, in this um, chapter. In it is, it is, it is. We, we found it. Okay. We found it. <laughs> we found it. We made it. Um, so where am I going with this? It's just got me thinking. Just We take for granted, I specifically take for granted, someone who's, who's grown up in a Hasidic home my whole life, who's been learning Hasidus, that this is a revolutionary idea. The fact that God is in everything, even in our challenges, right? Even in the person who's making you suffer, who's giving you our time, God's there. This is a revolutionary idea that comes with Hasidus. And um, I was thinking about this as well because, again, I'm also I'm very like, sheltered. I, most people I grew up with are also like Chabad. And so I was at a, I was at a, my father-in-law's meal on Chabad and there, there was a madrich there from Aish. You guys know Aish? By the end of the meal, he was convinced he was a shiach in Aish, not a madrich in Aish. Um, and he gave a dvar Torah. It was very, very nice. I don't really remember the whole thing, but he mentioned something about like midot tovot, that like the most important thing, you know, is that the midot tovot that happens comes before the Torah, um, because if you you know you can't have one without the other. And for some reason, when he said like, you know, good midos, he said good midos. I had like this reaction, and I was like, why? In Chabad, we don't use that term, and I was so I was like confused. Why not? Like, how many times have you heard like at a at a you know a Hasidic in a Hasidic class? Good meadows. N- never, right? And I was like, wait, why? Like, good meadows are like so important. What's I was like, why did I have that reaction? I haven't heard in this context of Vitara, like good meadows. I was like, wait, what, what's going on here? And so I've been thinking about it, and then I, I, I learned this time this morning, and I've been thinking about this mimer. And this is a fundamental difference between the philosophy of Hasidus and that of not. And the fundamental difference is like this. It's not that we're learning Torah, we're doing mitzvahs, and then when we're not, we're out in the world and we need to remember to have good midos. We're always expected to be godly people. Obviously, we're going to have good midos if we're godly people. That's like not even a question. But that's the difference. I don't know if that makes sense. It's not like, so I, so I was thinking about like the whole morning, so it hasn't fully developed, but like, it's not like, oh, remember when you're out at work, when you're not learning tournaments, to have good midos. And midos are like our qualities, right? To be a good person, to be a mitch. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. we expect way more than that from you. <laughs> you need to be a godly person at work, right? You, the, the Torah that you learned that morning, right, and the tefillin that the man wrapped in the morning, and the Shabbos candles that you look before Shabbos, are no more godly than you going to work. It's not like you have to remit, like, you going to work is part of serving God. So it's not, have good, if we're serving God at work, we're obviously going to have good meters, but much more than that too. We're not just going to be mentioned. Everyone needs to be a mensch. 
Non-Jewish people need to be a mensch. Everyone needs to be a mensch everywhere. Needs to have good character traits and work on themselves and refine themselves. We need to change the world and bring God into every single area. Which makes this question so much stronger. Because if that's what Hasidus expects of us, if that's what, if that's what Hashem expects of us, to know when we say, to know him in all of our ways, not just when we're davening in the morning and we're doing mitzvahs and then remembering to be a good person when we're not, but to know God and be godly and represent God in all of our ways, how does God expect us to do that when life is just so challenging and distracting and all-consuming? So that just like makes the question even stronger. So anyway, that, that was a side point, but um, just not to take for granted that this concept in general, even this title, spiritual elevation from refining materialism, these are revolutionary ideas of Hasidus. This concept that the two things can even work together. And that's what the Mimers want to propose, that actually these two things are one, the challenges and the serving God, they're the same thing, right? So with that, let's go inside the Mimer. The Mimer is called Mime Rabin, not a quote from Parshas Noach, but actually a quote from Shir Shir, like in Ani Ladodi. Ani Ladodi was speaking about Elul, speaking about Elul and Tishrei, but we started off Ani Ladodi with a quote from Shir Hashirin, so to here. We start off with a quote from Shir Hashirin, which is the book that was written by King Solomon, about the many waters, as we're going to see inside, and from there, we're going to compare these many waters with the challenges of life and with the waters of the flood of Noach and see how they all connect. Okay. <coughs> Any questions or comments before we go inside? Okay. Okay. I'm really glad that we have it inside. Um, okay. Page number four, part one. Mayim Rabim. This is the quote from chapter eight of Shirashim. The many waters, lo yuchlu, will not be able lechabot et to extinguish the love, unaharot lo yishtafuha, and the rivers will not be able to wash it away. In Yitain Ish, if a man would give, or when a man gives, at Kol Hon all of the wealth of his household, Ba'ahava, for love, boys Yavoy they will ridicule him. So what's going on in this, in this um, verse? The idea is that the many waters cannot wash away the love, and we're going to explain that the many waters is representing the challenges of life, cannot wash away the love, cannot wash away the <coughs> love that every single Jew has for God inside of them, and the rivers cannot wash it away. And what's said If a man would give all of the wealth of his house for love, if a man would give everything he owns in exchange for this love, people will ridicule him because this love is worth more than anything that he could ever own. So we're going to be discussing what are the, what's the man rather than what's the love. So Hinemayim Rabim, the many waters in this verse are corresponding to him called Tirda Taparnasa. These are all the worries and challenges of making a living. Vamachshavot and all of the thoughts, Olam Hazen, all the thoughts regarding physical matters. So here it does actually explicitly say the challenges of making a living and all the other physical challenges that come along with it. And note here, it's not speaking here about the challenges of what we can call the Yetzirah, the challenges of evil inclination, the challenges of serving God in a world, in a corrupt world. No, just the challenges of survival in this world. That's what we're focusing on here. The Mayim Rabim are the challenges of living in this physical world. And we know that nobody, <coughs> nobody is exempt from that, even if we 
can sometimes put some people on a pedestal and say, that person doesn't have any challenges. We know that, that there's no such thing. There's no such thing. So the Imkolze, despite all of this, despite all the challenges of existing and living in the physical world, they will not be able, these waters will not be able to extinguish the love. What's the love? This is the same love we've been discussing from Amila Dodi. This is referring to the concealed love in Israel. Every single Jew has in their soul. <coughs> Excuse me. Bateva, naturally, the Pinat Nefesh Shalokit from his godly soul. What's the nature of this love? Page number five. Shetiva Lalot, that its nature, the nature of the godly soul is to ascend, the Kalel Tamir, to always be reunited, Lamaila up above, Kishalhevet like a fire that rises up on its own. We've discussed the characteristics of the godly soul before, and we said that it is in a constant state of wanting to be reunited with God. It's like a flame that's always going upward toward its source. So that's the love that's represented by the godly soul that's constantly wanting to be reunited with Hashem above. So this love that our godly soul has can never ever be extinguished. No matter how many challenges we are faced with in this physical world, in the physical world that our godly soul finds itself in. As it says, Continuing with the idea of the state of the godly soul and its love for God, Kamosha Katub, as is written, Le'el Minei, above in chapter 6 of Shirashim, Rishafea, Rishfe'esh, its fires are a fiery flame, which is the love for Hashem. This is referring to the fiery love that descends from above. And we've discussed this again in Anil Dodi, that we have this innate love. This natural love that comes with the godly soul. Again, it's concealed. We don't feel it all the time. But our godly soul is in this constant state of love for Hashem, which comes as a gift from above. This is referring to the godly soul. right? We know that our animal soul is not in a constant state of love for Hashem. But our godly soul is. Before the godly soul was invested, but Gufagashmi in our physical bodies, Haitanenit Mizivashkina. It was enjoying, was basking in the rays of the Shekhina. Shekhina means God's revelation, God's light. The Haitam Yuchedet and it was unified, but Tahlitayuchud completely, the Ains of Baruch with God's infinite light. So before the godly soul descended into our body, it was in a state of basking in the rays and in the light. Of godliness, and it was in a constant state of unity with Hashem. The lezot, and therefore, gam Also, after it invested itself into the physical body, la sok and it has to now deal with physical matters and challenges. rabim, which are called the mayim rabim. These challenges, in nevertheless, lo yuchlu lechabota. These challenges are not able to extinguish the love tamid, from it being constantly in a state of love, the chukan nifla and a tremendous desire to ascend and to be one above. The Adrava, on the contrary, we'll finish with this with this um, paragraph and we'll sum it up. 
through the godly soul investing itself in the challenges of the physical world, now which we discussed above, it's able to reach an even higher level, from before it descended to this world, as will be explained. So the Alter Rebbe is laying out this posuk over here. What does it mean that the many waters can never extinguish the love? The challenges of the physical world can never get rid of the natural love that our godly soul has and is in a constant state of. No matter how many challenges we face, it cannot get rid of this love. And it ends off, which is, you know, the point here, not only can it not extinguish the love, but actually by the godly soul descending from its perch up in Gan right, from its place up there where it was enjoying from the lights of Hashem, and investing itself in the body and confronting challenges in this world, it actually reaches a level that's even higher than if it had never descended, which is a theme we're going to see a lot. Because you can always ask the question, is God like just playing a game? He takes a soul, which is very happy up there, he puts it down here so that it can face a bunch of challenges, so that what? That we could go back to Ganeidim. What's the point? Just stay there, right? And the answer is no, no, no. By coming down, it's actually able to reach a level that is higher than if it had not come down in the first place. That is higher <coughs> than the level that it was receiving and basking in in the spiritual world before it came down. So it gets what's called an aliyah, it gets an elevation. The, go- the godly soul, the animal soul we know. The godly soul as well. So now that we understand the Mayan Rabbin verse, we're going to go to Noach and the story, so to speak, of Noach and see that these Mayan Rabbin are actually referring to the floodwaters of Noach and that they're connected. Okay, and we're going to approach the question, we'll probably end up with the question of why did God specifically need to destroy the world with a flood in the, in the story of Noach. So Vihine, now, page number six in the middle. <coughs> I hope it's more helpful now because the English on the side and the, the vowels, right? It's a, it's a whole nother, it's a whole nother level of, yeah. I think all of our memoir will be like that. Just get more water. Okay. These many waters above. They're called the waters of Noach. As it says in Yeshayahu, Asher Nishvati, Asher is speaking through the prophet Yeshaya here, as I have sworn, in regards to the waters of Noach, od al ha'olam, that I will not bring them again to the world, ken Nishvati, so too I have sworn, I have promised, mikzof alayich, that I will not become angry on you, or make arbach, and rebuke you again. So the end of the story, the story of Noach ends, with Hashem promising Noach with the rainbow, right, that the rainbow was the sign that he's not going to destroy the world again with the flood. There were instances after Noach where God destroyed cities with floods. There were cities that sinned and God wiped them out. I just, I heard, I think it's a Gemara, I just came across this recently, that um, after Noach, God treated the non-Jews as he did the Jews throughout, if you look at the Nevi'im and the story of Tanakh, if you're sinning against God, I'm going to punish you so that you repent. At the beginning, that's how God treated the non-Jews as well. So there was a city that became corrupt. God did actually bring floods and, you know, you know the story of Sodom and things like that. He punished 
the non-Jews so that they would repent. But then it came a point where there was so much corruption by the non-Jews that he just stopped punishing them. He just stopped. Um, as opposed to with the Jews, we know throughout our whole history, um, when we look at all the stories of the Nevi'im, much, 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 much later, and the story of Noah Hashem is still not giving up, so to speak, on the Jews. If you sin, I'm going to punish you so that you can repent. Um, this stopped with the non-Jews at some point. But before it stopped, there were instances where God said, this, this town, this city, they're rebelling against God, I'm going to wipe them out so that the rest of the world knows and that, you know, there's, there's a war, there's punishment, there's a God, and there's an opportunity for Teshuvah. But God never again, as we, you know, as we know, destroyed the world, the entire world, with a flood as he had um, in the story of Noah. And this is because God made a promise to Noah, which is symbolized by the rainbow, which is why we don't see the rainbow as a unicorn, happy symbol in Judaism. Um, because even though it's beautiful, we try not even to point it out because it's a message from Hashem. Well, this is how we understand it, um, saying, this, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm reminding myself that I promise not to destroy you. But, but the fact that God has to remind himself that is already a little bit, you know. But do you say a bracha on the rainbow? We do say a bracha on the rainbow. We do say a bracha on the rainbow. Um, but there is an idea not to, okay, not to stare at it, not to bring everything you know, oh, there's a rainbow. Oh, no, it's, it's a tough one, because when there's like a cool rainbow, it's like. Um, but, but, but the idea is that there was no, there was no such thing as a rainbow before, um, before Noah. And it's explained that because the firmament up above was not solid enough. It became solidified afterwards. And so, because it was, I don't know exactly how the science works, because it was solid up there when it, when it light shadow was able to break up into all the different colors. Um, but in the context of Yeshayahu, Hashem is saying, just as I promised I'm not going to bring the waters of Noah upon you again, so too I'm not going to become angry and rebuke you again, which is referring to the time of Mashiach, where Hashem will not only not destroy the world, but also stop being angry and rebuking us. And what's the point that's coming here is May Noah, that the waters... The floodwaters are called the waters of Noah. They're named after Noah, specifically. And the question is why? What does Noah represent? What does Noah represent according to Kabbalah? Noah is, a, is an interesting character. I think you, you'll probably learn about him, I think, with the Maga, um, in your Parsha classes. He's not as cut, cut and paste as, as a lot of the other figures in, in history, you know, like Avram, Mitzvah, Yaakov. It's like, was he a tzaddik completely? Was he just a regular guy? He's a bit of a nuanced person, I guess we can say. Um, but, but Kabbalah explains that his name, Noach, comes from the word Naicha. And Naicha means rest. And that he represents rest. Not only Kabbalah, it's also brought... Um, it's, also not, it's not only brought in Kabbalah, it's brought in other places that, that Noach, that he represents rest because he brought peace and rest to the world. Finally, God was able to rest because he started a new world that was based upon new foundations. So as we see, they're called Mei Noach in the Tanakh. They're called the waters of Noach. And the reason is, Kihine, the reason that it's called Noach, that the waters, the floodwaters that destroy the entire world are called the waters of Noach, is who is Naicha Durucha. Because the name Noach is connected with Naicha, which means to rest. That it brought, the waters brought a restful spirit onto the world. Which is the concept of resting, Shvita from Shabbat, right? To rest. As a man who rests from his work. So 
So it's a unique type of rest that Noach represents and that the waters of Noach, the flood waters, represent. It's a rest that comes after hard work. There's two types of rest. There's rest for rest on its own, um, which doesn't feel much like rest if you haven't been doing anything, right? That feels more like, I guess, boredom and restlessness, right? Um, and then there's rest that comes after hard work, which is like Shabbat, right? Shabbat comes after six days of working. This is the rest that we're speaking about. It says here, as is written, when we speak about rest, that and God rested on the seventh day. The Targumo, and its translation into Aramaic is, <coughs> that he rested on the seventh day. So again, what, why are we bringing these quotes here? To show us that Nach, the word Noach, Noach's name means rest. Specifically rest that comes after hard work. So we thus see that the name Noach is connected to ceasing from work and resting like Hashem rested on Shabbat. And so we're, we'll end off with this. We'll continue about the idea that there's a higher level of rest and lower level of rest um, inside tomorrow. But what is the point here? What, what, what's the connection here? We're going to end up with a question, which is how can we call the floodwaters that destroyed an entire world waters of rest? It's a fair question, right? How can Noah represent rest? That is the question of the moment. And so we'll get into that tomorrow. Um, We'll also get into the idea that there's what's called an, a higher level of rest and a lower level of rest. In Hasidus, there's always a higher level of something and a lower level of something, right? Um, so what's the idea? A higher level, a lower level of rest is the level of rest that we, we experience like when it comes to Shabbat. On Shabbat, we've worked for six days. We rest on the seventh day. That's the lower level. We rest on the seventh day. What happens on Motzei Shabbat? We stop resting. We get up again. We have another week. So it's a non-eternal rest. It's a temporary rest. Um, and so it's called a lower level of rest. The higher level of rest is the idea of a rest that never ends. And that's the idea of the rest that comes, Yom Shekula Shabbat. Have you heard this term? Yom Shekula Shabbat? A day that is all Shabbat? It's referring to when Mashiach comes. When Mashiach comes, it's going to be Yom Shekula Shabbat. It's going to be a whole stretch, so to speak, of rest after 6,000 years, not six days, of galut, of exile we're going to have the ultimate rest. That's called the higher level of rest. So we know that Noach actually represents both, as we're going to see, because it says Noach, Noach twice in the Pasuk. Noach represents the lower level of rest and he represents the higher level of rest. And what we're going to try and understand tomorrow is how can we possibly call the flood, which you would not think of as peaceful, right? Peaceful waters, not at all, the waters of rest, the name Noach. And then from there, we'll get into connecting this back to the challenges. How can we call challenges, right? Because we said that they are connected. The challenges of the physical world, waters of rest. These are not restful. Challenges are not restful. So that's what we'll, uh, that's what we'll get into tomorrow. Anybody have any questions or comments?